Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Lisa Sun. Lisa is the founder and CEO of Gravitas, a company whose origin story dates back to Lisa's first professional review that she quote unquote lacked Gravitas and quote unquote should go buy a new dress, big jewelry and great shoes. Realizing the transformative power that clothing can have, Lisa secured the patent on building shapewear into dresses and launched Gravitas as a confidence company that offers innovative apparel and styling solutions designed to make over women from the inside out. Prior to founding Gravitas, Lisa spent 11 years at McKinsey and Company, where she advised leading luxury fashion and beauty brands globally on strategic and operational issues. Lisa graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Yale University with distinction in biology and political science. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Shauna. I'm so excited. I know, I'm too. Okay, so I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Um, do you have a favorite designer that's been an inspiration, obviously, outside of your Gravitas designs? Um, I would say it would be Alexander McQueen when he was still alive and he was, he was still designing. Yeah, love Alexander McQueen. Um, okay, what are the current fashion trends that you are most excited about? I know that your brand is a little bit more classic and timeless, but are there current fashion trends that you are excited about? I really enjoy the fact that we're defaulting to looser silhouettes. I think the looser silhouettes, I'm obviously wearing a blue on sleeve today. I love this because women always struggle with their arms. And so I love that we've gone back to these like beautiful blousey sleeves, um, shift dresses that can be belted. Um, I love oversized blazers, wide leg pants. I think that coming out of the pandemic, we're dressed dressing more comfortably, um, but still elegantly. And I, I love that yeah. that fits a plethora of body types and figures. Yeah. Well, you look extra elegant. I have to say I'm wearing my jeans. Sometimes I'm wearing my leggings at the bottom, which I'm embarrassed to admit. But yeah, I think a yeah. lot of people in the pandemic are making it, you know, beautiful on the top and a little bit more schlump on the bottom. Um, so well, and, and what I look like, I'm wearing just like a one piece dress right now. Um, I also think one of my favorite trends is um, 
clothing and accessories that are layered with meaning. So I purposefully wore this one. This is our Year of the Tiger collection. 90% of our team is of Asian descent and the money goes to stop AAPI hate because we have we had a bunch of hate crimes happen to our team during the pandemic. And then it's 100% made in New York. So it's the farm to table movement in fashion, which is your dollars when you buy something made in New York goes directly to a worker who can pay her groceries and go to other shops that need the money to pay their people. So I think it's looser silhouettes, which is are much more forgiving, and then products that have a ton of meaning where you feel like, okay, if I am going to buy something because I haven't bought anything in a year and a half, I know that I know where the dollars are going and I know that it has extra special meaning. I love that. That's amazing. Um, okay, what are three words that you would use to describe the culture at McKinsey? Um, service, uh, team, impact. Nice. And what are your three best qualities as a leader? Oh, my three best qualities, Aliga. I definitely um, believe in things before I can see them. So I, I definitely can imagine the future before it's manifested. And I think that's um, something that I feel very passionate about. The second thing is I really have compassion and empathy for the women we serve. And I think that's what allows me to understand what problems we can solve in their life. So I absolutely sit inside of the woman that we're uh, giving confidence to. And we as a team are real givers. So during the pandemic, as I'm sure we'll get into, um, when no one was buying workwear, we made hospital gowns and face masks. So we work from a place of purpose and a place of giving. Yeah, I love that. Okay. Are you, uh, do you subscribe to Eastern or Western medicine? Both because my parents now live in Taiwan. Um, so I am a proponent of both. Um, and I would say that I get my monthly package of, you know, Eastern herbs and teas and all the things from my parents. And then I absolutely do all the Western medicine and wellness practices as well. Yeah. I'm slightly fascinated by Eastern medicine and just in researching you, I was like, I'm sure she's had some exposure and um, love that you've got like direct influence from your family. That's amazing. Yeah. Also um, every, yeah. I, you know, over, through this wall right here, um, which I can show you the visual after we're done is, you know, 43 women who in the middle of New York City sew our products and all of them every week, they'll bring me something else to eat. Um, so it's it's really fun. It's like having 43 aunties because all of them will bring me something that I have to try. Yeah. Oh, you're getting all sorts of exposure. I love it. Um, okay. What is the best-selling Gravitas item? The best-selling Gravitas item. It's an $88 tregging. Looks like a trouser, feels like a legging. Um, right after that would be our Josephine Cape blazer because everyone wants to have a superhero suit. I think you have two, Shauna. Yes, I, think you I, have have two and a, I have a black and a white. Yes. And if you just wear that, I feel like it just makes the whole outfit. You're like done and done. You can wear jeans and a cami and put that on with a booty and you're ready to go. Yeah. And it is a, it is comfortable mixed with kind of confidence and power, which I know is a huge part of your brand. So yeah. I love it. Okay. So digging into you, um, tell me about your childhood in Bakersfield. You're from outside of Bakersfield, right? I'm from Rancho Cucamonga, California. Um, so that's probably like 45 minutes from Bakersfield. I It's the Inland Empire. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan. My mom 
and dad are college educated, but when they came to the US, they had no money. Um, my mom worked on a loading or a hamburger truck and my dad worked on a loading dock and they owned restaurants, Mongolian barbecue, $4.95 at lunch, $12.95 at dinner, all you can eat. I worked there every summer as the water girl um, and really got a chance to see my parents be entrepreneurial. And I think that is one of my favorite qualities is making something from nothing. So I grew up in the desert, uh, about hour and a half outside of Los Angeles on your way to Palm Springs or Vegas. That's usually when people would go through my town. Uh, we had a ticker tape parade the day we got a price club, a Walmart and a claim jumper. That's how <laughs> tiny the town was. Yeah. And uh, very, very fortunate that I got to learn what it means to be an entrepreneur from probably two of my favorite people on this planet, my parents. Yeah. And so obviously that the typical immigrant story is coming here to give your children and your um, future generations kind of a better life. Um, but how did they pick that area? I'm always curious about when people land places like, what yeah, was that there weren't story? many, there weren't many Asian people in, in the, in, in the place in which I grew up. Um, they originally worked in LA. And then I think as they looked at where there might be opportunities for being able to have a house and a yard, um, being able to afford, uh, a lifestyle of raising two kids on a restaurant business. I think as you head further east of LA and to the desert, you realize housing costs and you realize like cost of living, everything comes down. And so they decided that that would be the right place for them to be. Yeah. And you're obviously, I feel very strongly about all sorts of hate. Um, as, a, as a Jewish person, there's like, you know, anti-Semitism is on the rise, anti-Asian hate is on the rise. Um, and I'm curious obviously that's just kind of part of our DNA is to be on the front lines, kind of leading the charge on that conversation. But is it also personal for you from your childhood? Did you have any sort of um, discrimination being kind of one of the only Asian people in that area? Well, I would, I would actually say I would probably, I think there's three generations that we're dealing with currently when you look at what's happening to um Asian American and Pacific Islanders living in this country. My parents are what I call the assimilation generation. So they were come here, put your head down, don't make too much noise and use achievement and your children's achievement as a way of sort of proving that this was worth it. But they were not people who would go to a protest. They're not people who would report a hate crime. And my parents ran restaurants. So there were a ton of aggressions. They weren't even microaggressions that they experienced. Um, I think when you're the firstborn child of an assimilator, you basically put blinders on and don't think about it too much. Uh, I definitely experienced prejudice. I definitely experienced both aggressions and microaggressions in my childhood. But I think my parents were sort of like, the system wasn't built by us or for us. So just ignore it and just get yourself out of there. Um, my younger brother, who is a millennial, and I'm a Gen Xer, right? So the Gen Xers, I call us the reluctant activists. And I'll come back to that. My younger brother is a millennial. And so he's grown up very comfortable with speaking his truth and protesting. And during every single you know, BLM, anti-Asian hate, he was on his bike in Brooklyn at the front of every March, raising money, um, getting arrested. Uh, I always say, I think Asians, at least my generation, I call myself a reluctant activist. So you're in your 40s. You've had the accomplishments that your parents wanted for you. 
and yet you're pulled by this millennial force, um, you know, my younger brother. And so I think we are in positions where we have platforms, we have a little bit more money than our parents did. And I think it's on the people in their 40s and 50s who have not traditionally been involved to become more active. Um, one of my favorite stories is that when I got into Yale, my parents bought Yale mom and Yale dad t-shirts. Yeah, of course. And I was so embarrassed. They bought a lot of them and my parents wore them almost every day at <laughs> that the is restaurant. The cutest. I'm sorry, that's um, adorable. Well, but now I realize in my 40s that it actually was a form of armor, that it was a way to say, do not treat me like a dumb immigrant and don't think that I'm dumb. My daughter goes to Yale. Um, you know, I was embarrassed by it at the time, but now I realize that it was coded to say, don't make fun of me, don't abuse my team, don't abuse people at this restaurant because my daughter goes to Yale. Um, and I didn't realize until probably the last few years how much that meant to them to be yeah. able to have that armor. Yeah, um, interesting. Because if you don't there's speak the language, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say there's so many, when you say assimilation and that generation of assimilation, there's also like, it's beyond just how you're showing up publicly. It's also the food that you're cooking in your home, the language you're speaking in your home. And I've had a, a ton of guests on the podcast who, if they're not kind of, you know, white, born into this country, they had a whole thing around that, like, did their parents try to kind of go there to make burgers and fries or did they just <laughs> My parents own? certainly didn't. <laughs> right, right. Most of the guests, you know, parents have not. Um, and so there's this interesting blend of like, are you proud to bring people over to your house? And over time, as we are in our 30s, 40s, and for me, just turned 50, you get very strong, I think, um, pride in where you come from. But when you're little, everybody just wants to blend in. I mean, even the kids yeah. today are wearing like hoodies and leggings. I'm like, stretch it a little. Right, 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 right. No, I, I mean, for sure. I don't think I was ever embarrassed by my uh, background. Um, I would say, you know, and, and most of my summers I spent in Taiwan because my parents didn't have childcare when school was out. So I was very lucky in that I got a chance to speak the language fluently. I appreciated where I came from. I spent three or four months for 10 years with my family back in Taiwan, my extended family. And I would say though when I went off to school, I didn't really connect with my culture. I didn't join the Asian American um, organizations at my school. I just didn't get involved. And when I was climbing the corporate ladder at McKinsey, I was one of the few Asian women in the sort of managerial positions as you move up, because I was there for 11 and a half years. Um, and I really hid that part of me because it didn't make sense to, unless I was serving a client in Asia where it made sense. It was an asset that I could yes. speak the language. Um, and then when I started Gravitas, we, we really didn't, uh, we kind of said, we're not going to take political stances. We're not going to any of, you know, we really didn't get involved in any sort of cause from that standpoint. But then last year we did have two hate crimes happen. And I said, okay, we have a platform and we're going to raise money. We launched a campaign called Choose Compassion. So yeah. I feel like it's full circle going right. back to appreciating where I came from. Yeah, that's why I kind of wanted to dig in because I was really impressed um, by the fact that you've taken that stand because it can be risky. And it's like, you've got to give a voice to it. If, if not you, then who kind of? Mm -hmm. And um, so I think it's admirable. Um, so your parents, how did they meet? And um, what's their kind of background? And how did those values kind of parlay into your childhood? Uh, my parents met at work. My my mom went to um, a, 
a college called Wenzhou, which is a very well-known women's college in Taiwan. And she studied to be a secretary. And my dad was working in his family's seafood business and my mom was his secretary. So they met at work and uh, my dad decided they're actually the only two people to ever leave their families in Taiwan to go to the US. Everyone is still in Taiwan. Um, but my dad is a huge Hollywood musical fan and he thought the US would be like a Hollywood musical. <laughs> so they decided to pick up and start their life here. Interesting. And so when you were a kid, um, I guess, you know, who was guiding you along the way on college applications and kind of how to drive the typical um, story. Cause I know Jane, Nobody. Jane, Jane Park introduced us and in her podcast, I was so fascinated by her story of kind of not knowing about the SAT and not knowing yeah. it costs money. And I was just thought that was incredible. So how did you figure it all out? I, you know, I, I went to public school my entire life and I had an amazing um, English teacher that was pretty much the most important person in guiding my journey to get to Yale. Um, my parents just knew that there were three colleges and they were Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. If you're in the Chinese community, you know, yes. those are the only ones you know. And so um, my parents were like, well, those are one of the three schools you're going to try to get into, right? Uh, and I didn't know what it would take. This was 1995, 1996. So I borrowed a typewriter with Whiteout, if you remember Whiteout. Oh, of course. Um, and I literally typed my applications. I did not have any guidance outside of this one English teacher in high school that helped me edit them, but I literally just did it on my own. And I applied to college when I was 15 years old because uh, I had skipped a few grades. So imagine being a 15 year old and really not knowing what the process was like, just getting this paper application and just literally typing. I always say, I think I, I really, like I really I, can't it's imagine like a golden it. ticket. It's like the Willy Wonka golden ticket, right? Yeah. I ate a chocolate bar and there was a golden ticket in it. Um, but no, I, I had no clue what was, I was 15 and a half. How could yeah. you? Um, yeah. Are you so still in touch with the English teacher? I am. I am. And actually my high school principal bought face masks from us uh, during the pandemic. Oh, and she wrote that. us a letter. It's just really nice. Uh, my yearbook advisor, we're friends on Facebook. So um, I really feel like my public school adopted me because I had skipped, I had skipped two grades at that point. And when I went to this, it's, it was a school of a thousand kids in the middle of a desert. You I don't, can easily like, get lost in that. Yeah. Um, the school was 11 years old and they'd never have anyone really go to an Ivy League college. So I feel like they adopted me when I came in the door as a freshman. Um, I yeah. had a very rare experience. I have a tiger mom who obviously fought for me to get yeah. the best education I could. But. Right. And when you have a tiger mom and it's just kind of baked into the culture, is that kind of a fear of failure or a North Star of like, this is where I'm going and I'm motivated by that? Uh, I would say that it's certainly a North Star. I think my parents are very much um, trying to, I think they absolutely had in mind giving me the best life possible and, and making sure that I could accomplish as much as I want. I would say the fear of failure is the flip side of the coin to your point, because you're always, you know, you'd walk out of a test and you'd say, oh my God, I failed it. And there's no way you failed it, right? There, right, you've you got a 98, so which is like, why did you lose? Uh, yeah, why did you get a 100? You're so prepared for it. Um, but um, it was certainly a more positive trying to trying to create better pathways and opportunities for us. Yeah. I'm not sure my parents knew what they were because they'd never been exposed to them. Yeah, interesting. And so having the exposure to your parents, both being entrepreneurs, at what stage in your life did you realize you had 
the entrepreneurial bug? How, how, how early was it? Um, I would say I spent, you know, more than a decade in a corporate environment, but within that, I tried to carve out as many entrepreneurial things as possible. I was one of the leaders of the fashion and luxury practice. Those are not traditional clients of a major consulting firm, right? They're under a billion dollars or they're, and and so I had to really create a program from, from nothing. And what I realized is private equity firms would buy Montclair jackets and it's a 50 to hundred million dollar business and they need to scale it to a billion. That would be an interesting client for McKinsey. Um, uh, a brand that was part of a group like Marc Jacobs at LVMH, you know, they aren't, they're a half a billion dollar company. They can't afford McKinsey, but LVMH can. So I was fairly entrepreneurial within the constructs of right. what I was given because I would seek out these opportunities and the firm would say, how did you meet that person? Or, wow, didn't know that we would be serving them, but if you figured that out, okay. Um, And then I knew I was going to leave. I took a year off. I took a paid sabbatical and I knew I was going to leave when I realized that I felt like I could do more and make a bigger Mm -hmm. difference in the world for women outside of the firm than inside of the firm. What did you do during your sabbatical? I, uh, it's, I live off the fumes of that year. I used every mile and point and I went around the world by myself. Um, this was, uh, it was 2011, so I still had a BlackBerry, which I miss every day. I love that thing. And I didn't take a computer. I took a bunch of books and because I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to plug in any devices. And I just went around the world by myself with my what? Little... That is literally on my list of like, if I could have gone back and turned back the clock. What an incredible experience. Yeah, very rarely in life do we get to hit the pause button. And um, my friend, Jane Park, who you also know, yeah, everyone always goes, how much, how do you have so much energy for everything? I'm like, I don't have kids and I'm not married and I'm in my forties. So clearly I can do a lot more. If I had kids and a husband to take care of, I'm not sure I I could. For anybody listening and if you're just listening and you cannot see Lisa, here's the deal. She's stunning and so polished and clearly so articulate. I love to set people up and I'm like, who knows who's well, listening, but thank you for the Asian you're the, genetics. You're what they, you're the what they call, yes. I'm like that skin, that hair, <laughs> you are what they call the unicorn and they, they're hard to find. I'm I going, make so many back. mistakes, Shauna. It's well, like a hot mess. If I turn this camera around, you'll see actually what my desk looks like. And it's really messy. And I make so well, many mistakes and mess I'm, is okay. <laughs> mess is okay. Um, yeah, my but, husband yeah. tries to convince me that a mess is okay. I'm like, you know what, but Shana, yeah. I will say that um, very rarely in life do we get to hit the pause button, right? So I'm incredibly lucky that I had the flexibility to be able to do that for a year. I didn't have yeah. a family I was taking care of. Um, the firm was still paying me my sabbatical uh, paid leave. And so what I did learn from that, though, and I think is what I still practice today is every week, there is a day where I turn off everything and everyone's pretty shocked that I can do that, but I love the quiet. I don't think I would have started this company if I hadn't given my mind a full year just to really just be in it. And it wasn't like I had pressure about what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? I actually said, it'll come to me. And I do that once a week now because that's um, incredible. like having no agenda. I, I love a day. I call it a no plan day. You could find you could find yourself a nice Jewish boy who's like observant who wants to observe Shabbat because that's on Saturdays. Shauna, I am single and I love Friday night Shabbat dinner and I yes. love being able to shut down. So Shauna, if you have anyone for me, oh my gosh, I'm, my wheels take, are turning. I will take the recommendation. <laughs> I have to um, give I'm it newly some single. Thoughts. 
I'm newly single, so. I love that. Okay, so going back to Yale real quick, you had Harvard, Princeton, Yale. I don't know if you got into those other schools, but how did you decide on Yale? And then looking back, was that the right choice for you? I'm about to say something really obnoxious. So I had um, my parents, they did find a couple of other Chinese people to become friends with. And one of my faux uncles, um, Dr. Walter Hu, he's passed away now, but he was a civil engineer uh, who went to Caltech. And he used to take me to dinner on Tuesday nights. And my parents were like, oh, this is so lovely. He wants to mentor our daughter. He's like the only person we know who has a PhD. You know, how impressive he went to Caltech. We found out later that like kids ate for free on Tuesday nights at the Sizzler. So it wasn't that <laughs> magnanimous of him. He came to my college graduation. But um, for years, he said, if you get into Harvard, I will pay for all four years. And remember, my parents could not afford to pay for an Ivy League school. I had six jobs in college and lots of scholarships and things like that. But um, so I was like, OK, I'm going to get into Harvard because if I get into Harvard, Doctor Who will pay for all four years of college and he didn't have kids. So it was one of those like amazing things. Of course, I did not get into Harvard. I like lost my mind. I cried all day. I got into everywhere else but Harvard. Um, and my mom and dad said to me, who did you like most in your interviews, right? Yale, Princeton, um, Stanford, right? I'd gotten into some really impressive places. So it's obnoxious to talk about it because I've helped so many young women in the last few years apply to these places and they haven't gotten in. I'm like, you are so much more impressive than I ever was as a, as, as a young woman. Like, I can't believe you didn't get in. Um, and through that process, the only person of color that I had met in the interview process was my Yale interviewer, African-American man who worked at Lockheed. And he was the only person that I saw myself in. I said, I want to emulate you. I, I love your story. And so I ended up, I never went on a college tour. Obviously my parents couldn't afford to take me for college visits. I envy all these young men and women who get to go on these trips now. And I said, okay, I really liked this person in the interview process. And my mom said, great okay, that's the one you're going to. Let's figure out how to make sure you can go and how you're going to pay for it. Um, so the first time I ever saw Yale's campus was the day I started as a freshman. My mom dropped me off with two suitcases and she got back on the plane to California. Wow. And so was it the right choice? <laughs> you never know. I always say right. that. I, Did you, know, you love fork, it? Fork in the road. I changed my life. And, and I interview kids now who want to go to Yale. And I always say, you know, Yale changed my life. And it opened up all these opportunities I didn't know existed. And so why do you want to go to this school? Like, will it really change your life, right? Incrementally, will it make a huge difference? Will you do something with this education? Um, who knows, right, about the path not taken? I always feel like you make of it what you will because of how awesome you are. Yeah. Um, and when I was at Yale, I did everything. I feel like I, I felt like I was a kid in a candy store. And remember, again, I went to college at the age of 16, right? I applied at 15. I turned I mean, 16. I have a 15 year old. I literally cannot picture her. I don't even know. I'm like, yeah. I mean, that's kind I of, I mean, that. I, I turned 16 in December of 1995. I graduated from high school, um, June of 1996. And I was at Yale, September of 1996. So I was 16 years old. Yeah. Um, and I basically said, I want to maximize this. I, I was the only people thought I was crazy. I was like, I'm going to take six classes. I'm going to join every club. I'm going to run for Yale College Council. Um, I was that, I feel like, um, you know, that Reese Witherspoon character, yes. um, Tracy Flick in Election. Oh, yes. yes. Um, or Hermione Granger. I identify so closely with all of those characters for some reason. 
Yeah. Well, it doesn't surprise me to see where you are now. That's your just natural DNA. You're like, I am going to be on supercharged. And that's why you need your one day a week off. Okay. So studying biology and poli sci, A, how did your parents feel about that? And B, what was your plan with those degrees? And well, my mom wanted me to be the first Asian woman chief justice of the Supreme Court. Oh my God, I love her. And it was because they had become citizens under the 1986 Naturalization Act. So my mom thought lawyers were powerful. Mm -hmm. My dad had seen um, the forensic scientist in the OJ trial and said, well, you're going to be a scientist, right? Like, and he was, he's a Chinese American man who was based in Connecticut. And so my parents said, you're going to either study law or medicine. And I wanted to study Jane Austen for the rest of my life or be a politician. Um, And so to satisfy everyone, I got a biology degree, a political science degree, and an international studies um, add-on. Wow, I didn't know about that one. Because that was was the unofficial, Yale cannot give you three degrees, but I did the international studies additional degree. Um, And... What I always say is very little of what I studied is useful today, other than for incredibly fun dinner conversation. Mm. But what I enjoyed about it is something that I talked to my team a lot about is everyone on my team, probably starting with myself, we are passionately curious. We are, and I, I, I love passionate curiosity, um, the openness to learning new things, to learning about others, um, the empathy and compassion that comes from it, the things that we can do for others. So I would say studying all of those topics, pretty much you could either say she had no plan and she has ADHD, or you could say, I mean, I'm passionately curious. Yeah, um, or, a, or a combo meal, I'm sure. <laughs> so Mackenzie, was that a, an experience that, um, you know, this, the typical coming to Yale got recruited out? And were you also looking at like Bain and BCG and... Okay, Shauna, I'm really going to sound like I didn't have a plan. Uh, I uh, took the LSAT, the MCAT, the GMAT, and the GRE. I applied to law Who school. are you? I mean, no wonder Jane was like, you have to have my friend on. I'm like, there's these onions, and we're just like, we're only, I don't even know no, where we so, are in the onion. No, so um, during college, I didn't do that junior year internship anywhere. I didn't even know. I, by the way, I didn't know what McKinsey or Bain and BCG yeah. were until spring of my senior year. That's how out of touch I was. My junior year, I my I can't believe my parents let me do this. I enrolled at Parsons School of Design and did black and white photography and lived in the village with my best friend who had an internship at Lehman Brothers. Uh, and I studied for the LSAT. And I, I think I convinced them by saying that I would take the LSAT, the MCAT, the GMAT and the GRE. I mean, I went to Kaplan. what abundant spare time? Um, well, no. So I took junior, I didn't have an internship junior year, right? I'd done all these internships every summer. And then I was like, I'm going to live in the village from eight to 12 every day. I'm going to go to Parsons and I'm going to take photography class and develop photos in an actual, you know, dark room. And then in the afternoon, I'll go to my Kaplan classes. I'll go to my MCAT and my LSAT and my, and my GRE classes. And then by the end of the summer, I will have taken all the standardized tests and I'll apply to some schools. So I had a lot of free time. That was my favorite summer because three months in New York city. I mean, come on, that, that was amazing. Yeah. But I can Uh, see just being like, okay, is it Parsons? And then I kind of walked down in the village and got a coffee. Yeah. I mean, the New York times crossword puzzle. And then I went to my Kaplan class for two hours and took a, took a practice test. It's very odd. I kept it in. I can't believe my parents let me do this. I still, I'm still trying to figure out why they let me do this. Um, And then senior year, I applied to law school and med school and English grad school. And I got all these acceptances and I was still confused. Um, And someone told me, well, there's this thing called consulting 
and I feel like you might be good at it. And this is before consulting firms stopped doing spring recruiting. So consulting mm -hmm. firms used to hire people in the fall and the spring. Now they just hire people in the fall. And so last minute, I just applied. I just sent in my resume to McKinsey, uh, Bain, BCG, and Monitor. I didn't even know what they did. Um, and uh, this was, I think, January or February of my senior year. So I had been... I had acceptances to schools and I still didn't have a job. And I just showed up at undergraduate career services and I did the interviews and uh, really was confused by the way, by these interviews, these case studies. Um, and I got a few offers uh, and my mom got a little sick. So I ended up helping them with the family business for a period of time. And I deferred all of my application, all my acceptances for schools. And when my mom got sick, I went home and helped them with their business. And in that process, my mom's like, well, you know, next year, maybe you just get a job. Maybe you just get a job. And so I was like, well, McKinsey, they seemed really nice. I liked the people yeah. again through the, it, it's amazing how much the interview process can teach you about the culture of a company. Yeah. I loved everyone I left met through the McKinsey process. And so I had the offers and I was like, well, I liked them. So yeah. Well, that's Let's a good that way. One. That's a good baseline. Um, Oftentimes I do tell people I've been recruiting for 28 years and actually McKinsey was a client of mine and Bain in New York. Um, and I do tell them like, sometimes it is about going with your gut on like the humans behind the business, because that's what makes up the culture and everything. Uh, one of my favorite things in my, my first McKinsey screening interview, um, uh, a man named Rogers, who I'm still in touch with, he basically took my resume and he threw it away. And he's gonna, if he listens to this, he's gonna be like, I cannot believe you told the story. He literally just threw away my resume. He's like, look, you're just as qualified as anyone I'm gonna see today. And he said, but I have to work with you in a team room four days a week and travel with you. And I wanna know what kind of person you are. Like, is this somebody that I could imagine spending 12 weeks with and four days a week, seeing you more than I see my spouse, see you more than I see my family um, and my kids. I want to know that you're the type of person I'd want to be around and would care enough to do good work for the clients. And I was like, wow, he was the, that was my first McKinsey interview. And I, it stood out so much to me. And then my final McKinsey interview, um, Les Silverman, he comes in with a glass of water, does not even have my resume. And he puts the glass of water down and he goes, impact. We, we drive results and impact. So let's just have a conversation about impact. And neither of them made me do the, you know, how many balls of string would you right. need to go the around case the world? studies and the blah, blah, yeah. I mean, I did eventually have to do them with other people through the process, but mm -hmm. McKinsey was the only one where I had these two interviews that stood yeah. out. That they was kept not, it real. Yeah. And I was like, I want to be a place where yeah. that's the question I'm being asked. Yeah. And so you um, were kind of in the fashion sector. What were some of your favorite assignments and what did you learn about um, the industry that you've kind of parlayed into Gravitas? Well, I would say, you know, first of all, the, the reason why I threw my hat in the ring to get onto projects where we were serving fashion clients was I've always been, you know, over a size 14. So, um, you know, I've never been the traditional um, fit model for a fashion brand. And for many years, it made me feel like I couldn't participate in the category. Um, and as I found my way into it, I realized how much of a difference it could make in someone's psychology, um, fashion, beauty, luxury. They do not, they're not frivolous categories from my point of view. And 
the founding of the company, my first boss told me I didn't have any gravitas and told me to buy a new dress and look in the mirror and like myself. I read that in your, in your intro and I was like, holy shit, who does that? And she was the first woman head of any McKinsey office. Oh, it was office. a woman? That makes it, it even worse. It was a worse. woman. Uh, actually, she's an investor in my company, so I do value her. I really think what she was trying to say is, you know, I'll teach you how to be good at this job, but you have to like yourself. Yeah. You know, and, and when I put on a dress, um, you know, I like myself. And I I wonder, I'm wondering if day. she was actually also saying women have to work twice as hard as men. And so you have to have that little extra kind of um, chutzpah. You yeah, know, or, or kind of zhuzh, a little something, something to have a presence in the boardroom. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I really think that, um, I really think that um, she's never said that explicitly to me, but certainly I could probably interpret it that way. So tell me the origin story of the business and um, kind of how you first launched. Um, so as I mentioned to you, my first boss said I didn't have any gravitas. I didn't have any confidence. And she told me to buy new clothes. Um, what I do, what I do take away from it is this whole idea of reminders that we can be confident. So the company is really built on this idea of Dumbo did not need a feather to fly, but it reminded him that he could. So our products and what we offer remind women to see the best in themselves. Um, the mission is to catalyze confidence. Our first product is we patented building shapewear into clothes. Um, so that was kind of a big deal. Size zero to 26W. We were inclusive before it was cool to be inclusive. We don't say plus size. We don't say straight size. We say every size. Um, and we were very lucky six weeks after we launched, we got two pages in Oprah Magazine. Um, we were on the Today Show. We we're in People Magazine. I did not have a publicist at the time. People always go, did you have a publicist? We ended up hiring one later. But um, before I launched the company, I invited 200 people into my home, five people a night for 40 days to beat up the business, to give me feedback. I'm not the type of an entrepreneur that says you have to sign an NDA um, because guess what? We all have great ideas. It's how we execute. I, I don't believe in holding on to something. Um, and in the process of those 40 days, you know, little things like one of my best friends from college, the old tagline of the company was be remembered because when you see someone with gravitas, you remember them. And she goes, that sounds like rest in peace, RIP. It should be own your moment, right? Wow, big idea. Um, other people basically said, um, I know Oprah, or I know the editor of People Magazine, or I know, and people made intros. And so by not holding on to the idea so tightly, I let people have their fingerprints on it. I let them feel ownership over the success of my company. And so when we launched, it was really fun because we had 200 people plus then all their extended networks willing us to success. So um, that's wow. kind of how we operate too. We, and we, you, you we, talked about investors. Did you, um, you just had kind of friends and family? So I, um, I put in half of my life savings at the beginning. And then after we had this, uh, really Oprah changed our life. So, oh my gosh, you get uh, on Oprah, you're like done and done. That's amazing. Yeah, so we sold out pretty quickly and I couldn't get back in stock. I didn't have enough working capital and that's where we did friends and family. So we passed around the hat, which was really great. Um, and then a few year, years later, as we were scaling, I was lucky enough to have um, an ex-McKinsey person want to um, do a small round and basically that's it. We've kind of um, haven't done any institutional fundraise in eight years and we've done it off of cash flow and friends and family and 
you know, friends loaning us money when we needed it. Um, it it's probably, that. it's probably not ideal. I would say I, it's I not that I envy, I don't yeah. envy the people who raise 10 or $15 million series A. I, by the way, Jane Park is so amazing in so many ways. So I've learned so much from what she did when she funded Julep. Um, I, Maybe I don't have the guts to do an institutional I think race. it's just a whole um, lot or... of extra pressure and directionally you start putting together that type of board and there can be friction there, right? Like what you want to do, what you're passionate about, the speed within which uh, you grow, what you're focused on, you know, you end up losing a little bit of control and that's just part of it. Yeah, but we go slower. So that's right. I understand that, yeah, the That's intentional I and mean, that's okay. Um, I, yeah, I understand the trade-off between slow organic growth and then yeah. next level growth. It's um, a marathon versus a sprint. It's like a whole, yeah. yeah. And I love, um, some of my investors are connected to other women entrepreneurs like Kendra Scott for 20 years, you know, grew that thing slowly and then was able to take on large institutional capital when she deserved the billion dollar valuation. Um, Sarah Blakely, you know, there's lots of those stories. I don't know if we will be in that set. I hope we will, um, but I certainly haven't um, done the massive institutional raises. Uh, it is yeah. a lot of pressure, Shauna. And, and part of me is lucky. I do feel lucky that we didn't do it because during COVID nobody was buying 200 to $300 workwear. We were 80% down in our core category. Our sales were negative in March of 2020, because people sent back clothes that they weren't going to wear. People often think sales were zero. They were negative because we had to refund people. Um, and I would have thought if I had large institutional investors, the pressure for the timeline to hit certain numbers, I'm lucky that I was able to just pivot, be flexible, find other sources of cash, mm -hmm. um, find other sources of revenue. Were you able to revenue. hold on to your staff? Yeah. Yeah, we were very that's, lucky. That's incredible. Very so good. your first item um, and just understanding that you're going um, size zero to 26, you said 26W, mm -hmm. right? Um, how did you know, like who were your first few hires? Was it first start with a designer? Yeah, we we started with the designer and she she's no longer with the company, but she's incredibly talented. Um, and everything was done freelance. Like I didn't... Um, I didn't hire anybody really until right before we launched because I wasn't yeah. sure what we had, um, but everybody was freelance. So we had a, a fashion designer, a pattern maker, a sample maker, um, a web designer, um, someone to do all the creative work. Um, and then I, I, I did a lot of it myself just because I wasn't sure where to find the people or, or where to, um, source the talent. So we kind of fumbled our way through the first year before we launched. Um, and I kept it all freelance. When we launched, um, we had we had a marketing person, a creative person, um, a designer, um, and customer service. So only five of us sitting in my apartment. We ran the company yeah. out of my one bedroom oh, apartment. I love that. And how many SKUs did you have? And how many do you have now as far as the growth? So we, we only had 10 styles, all in black, no colors. Um, size zero at the time it was size zero to 18. Um, and then we added the additional sizes a year later. Um, and now we're probably up to a hundred, hundred styles at any one point in two to three colors and zero to 26 W, um, sometimes 28 W, but at the time it was 10 dresses. That was it. And, and how can people access the brand? Where do you sell? Uh, just on our website right now, gravitasnewyork.com and New York is spelled out. Um, and then I know you're in the 
you're in the uh, Pacific Northwest. So we do yeah. work with Armoire. Um, we love the Armoire team. So you can rent it yeah. from Armoire, but primarily through us. Well, Ambika was on my uh, podcast and she's a good friend. And I, oh, I do amazing. know. Yeah, I love her. Love it. Um, interesting. And so um, as far as inspiration for the new designs, is that coming mostly from your customers or are you trying to kind of constantly research or is this just your kind of, I've got this vision that you were talking yeah. about as your special skill? Well, I would say we do three things uh, when we when we do new collections. So we launch a new capsule every six weeks, six to eight weeks. Um, one is what we're hearing from customers for sure. We definitely listen to our customer quite a bit. The second thing is um, we look at trend. So we do see what's happening in the market um, and try to say, how would we interpret this for our woman? And then the third, which oftentimes is crazy is Lisa's, Lisa just wants something, um, which I know is a little bit dangerous, but like last summer, I gained 32 pounds during the pandemic. And last summer I was just like, I want a dress that covers my arms for the summertime, but covers also all the places I've gained weight and I look skinny in photos in because if I have to take a photo and they made a dress for me called the Florence, which was my go-to. I had it on last night when I was in Phoenix. Um, So sometimes it's things like that. Sometimes it's things like that. Like I need to wear something and will you please make me a sample? I, I try all of our products for eight weeks before we move them into production. Yeah. And, and the fit models, do you have just all sorts of different sized women? Yeah. Try them so because there's also different shapes, you know, everybody's got yeah. different, we fit different on a body six. areas. Yeah. We fit on a six and an eight and we fit on an 18 and a 20. So what we'll do is um, we'll fit on a six if it's a numerically sized garment. So zero, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12. We'll fit on an eight if it's an alpha product. So extra small, small, medium, large. Same thing for 18 and 20. So that's how we, and sometimes we fit on a 16. Yeah. And so you talked about the pandemic, aside from gaining 32 pounds and having your business go down by 80%. That's And breaking up with my boyfriend. And breaking up with your boyfriend. Yeah. Well, it's the triple all at once. You're like, things can't get much crazier and more (laughs) challenging at this point. How did you pivot the business to keep the revenues, I guess, coming back? Well, you know, and Jane Park was a part of this. Um, when most of the country went into lockdown between March 13th and 17th, um, I literally thought to myself, this might not be, like we might not be able to make it. Um, and one of our angel investors said, Mount Sinai needs hospital gowns. Mount Sinai Hospital needs hospital gowns. And then a number of ex-McKinsey people I know on LinkedIn um, reached out asking if we were making face masks. And then our friend in the Today Show said, hey, I need 50 face masks for all the producers and cameramen. And this is when no one could get face masks. Yes. Um, and at Jane Park, we do some of her production. She had just shipped to our office Japanese quilters cotton um, for her toki bags that we were going to sew for her. And the New York Times said that is one of the best fabrics that you can use for face masks. So I remember calling Jane on April 2nd of 2020 saying, hey, do you mind if I just borrow like five yards of your fabric to make 50 face masks for our friend at the Today Show? She's like, yeah, yeah, you can have it for free. Obviously, I would not charge you for it. And um, in the meantime, we were making hospital gowns in China um, for major hospitals. So that was helping as well. Uh, and I called Jane and we put it on Facebook. Hey, we're going to like just start making face masks. Um, and then everyone started messaging us saying, well, can I buy them? 
And then um, the CEO of HelloFresh, who's an ex-McKinsey guy said, hey, I need 2,500 for the warehouse in New Jersey. How soon could you get them to us? Um, and it was very organic. So we went back to work April 3rd of 2020. Um, I would like to think the pivot was intentional. And as Jane likes to say, no, the pivot was just filled with purpose. And um, at every moment we would check in almost every day of like, should we keep going? And you'll remember this, Sean, and no one could get a face mask in April yeah, of 2020. I remember. I had a few uh, clients that are in the industry that also did the same pivot. And what I realized is that it was kind of hard off the out of the gate to get the sizing quite right. And then once they did, it was like, brilliant. Well, that's one of our superpowers. We're really good at fitting products. And so um, we really worked on the pattern and the shape and the sizing, all of that in less than a day. So April 2nd, I have photos of us trying them on and we shipped them. She shipped one for Jane to try. Um, and we were one of the few companies that offered small, regular, and for men, large, you know, we did an adult extra large. Yeah. And then we did kids um, for yeah, kids, kids two to seven, kids eight was to a 12. Big deal. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason I think we were so fast at it is we're used to sizing. We're used right. to making multiple sizes of a garment. Right. And so I remember calling Jane saying, hey, I'm going to do an extra large and I'm going to do a petite and I'm going to do a kids two to seven and a kids eight to 12. And I think she was like, what, what are you doing? I'm like, I think we're going to sell them all. And we did, right. We were, we were one yeah. of the few places that you could actually come and buy for the whole family. In one right. Place. Well, it's just that thinking around being inclusive, yeah. right. So, um, so given the whole brand is you know, around confidence and you, you strike me as a very confident person. Do you ever experience, you know, imposter syndrome or kind of feel like, how did I get here and do I belong here? Um, well, you know, I, I love what um, Jodi Ann Burry and Rashika Tulshan are doing about the myth of imposter syndrome. They're actually saying we need to eliminate it from our vocabulary um, because imposter implies criminality and syndromes like a 19th century women's yes. disease. So what's a different, um, what are they using no, instead? Uh, they call they call it healthy self-doubt. Okay, um, do you have healthy I, self-doubt? Of course, I think we all have healthy self-doubt, but no, it, it's funny. I, I've been reading a lot about um, the whole notion of part of imposter syndrome is, again, the system was not built by us or for us. And so the fact that we take on the burden and the responsibility of feeling less than actually the system needs to actually take its fair share of the burden, right? Just think about um, who has created the system and the rules that we've been asked to play by. And when we try to play them, we're called aggressive or we're trying, you know, so um, I didn't mean to pick on that word, but it's, it's one of my like new pet peeves is um, replacing it with the idea of healthy self-doubt. Cause I think we all have healthy self-doubt around, yeah. can I really do this job? Can I step up into this? Can I um, tackle this? And one of the, I, of course I have it. And one of the ways that I combat that is I call it the inner child challenge. Um, so I hate questions like, um, or I dislike, someone told me to stop using the word hate. Hate is so strong. I dislike questions like, um, what would you tell your younger self if you could go back and tell them something? I'm like, I get it. It's supposed to be what you've learned. But I think the more important question is what would your nine-year-old self tell you? Because she was awesome. She thought she was going to be president of the United States. Kids are born fully self-confident. They actually think they're the best at everything. And so whenever I feel like I can't do something, I'm like, you know what? Nine-year-old Lisa would have been like, let's do this. This is awesome. Or like, hey, we're not taking enough risks. Or I'm not proud that you didn't do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm starting, I just joined an online dating app. 
And I was like, nine-year-old Lisa would have had a lot of fun. She would have been all up for this. 42-year-old Lisa is like jaded and like, I can't do this. I can't put myself back out there. I love these perspectives that you're giving me. Um, I'm going to like, I'm going to take them (laughs) for myself. No, but inner child challenge is the easiest thing you can do, right? If you just are like debating something or thinking about oh my God, I'm afraid I can't do this. Just go back to your nine-year-old self. Like I can definitely envision her being right. like, oh my God, we're going to run well, for president like, of the United it's, States it's someday. Also, <laughs> it's just as simple as like the whole like dance as if nobody's watching. Like, you know, yeah. the self-conscious that comes organically, I think during like middle school for girls yeah. um, where they start to kind of camouflage themselves and they don't yeah. want to be special or fabulous um, can carry on. So we, somebody doesn't we disrupt use- that. Um, what we talk a lot about is um, the fitting room. The dressing room is an analogy for your life. Every woman I dress comes into the dressing room with self-loathing. She is setting herself up to fail. She'll tell me she doesn't like her arms or she hasn't. she's going to lose 10 pounds or she just had a baby. And I always say, okay, let's pause. Let's go back to being five years old. And I'm going to find something that fits you, not you fit into it. And every, and I don't even let them look at clothes. We actually talk about what they want to do in the clothes, all the things they've accomplished. We try to change the chemistry of the room to be a place of positivity because you can't succeed if you walk in the room ready to fail. And I think that's definitely an analogy about around how most of us are taking on the day. Um, so it's so I, true. I, even my friends who never struggle with their weight and can kind of eat what they want have a thing. And it's, it's just, you're like, really, that's your thing. I'm Um, like, come on. I would take those abs all day long. But the thing is most of us live with healthy, healthy self-doubt. I make a ton of mistakes every day. I woke up today with a, a lot of stress and a lot of worry. And I, I, I take a daily dance class with my friend, Anna Kaiser, who has the most Um, unbelievable dance for dance company or a a fitness company and dancing it out because, you know, stress, is physical trauma. So dancing it out. And then I do really think a lot about um, the idea of my nine-year-old self. She was, she is, she was pretty badass. So well, clearly, I mean, look at your, your life story. Okay. So tell me this dance fitness company. Oh, it's the best ever. Anna Kaiser studios. You can do it virtually. She has a virtual membership. I love to dance. And, and she trains Kelly Ripa and Shakira and Alicia Keys um, and me. Um, But (laughs) it is dance cardio and, and also, um, hit and sculpt so she has like this combination workout where you can do like your pilates your circuit training and you can dance all in one workout that's Um, amazing so i have i have lost 20 of the 32 pounds i was gonna ask and then i was like well wait maybe good for you i mean i have 12 more pounds to go (laughs) you'll be great um i i can't see it but of course i mean you're stunningly beautiful and also I feel I'm 50, but when I was growing up, the kind of idea of beauty was around like Kate Moss body. And mm-hmm. I feel like today with like Lizzo and women like Alicia Keys who have serious body positivity are a great message. My, my kids tell me, cause they've got their shapely bodies, their more athletic build that their kind of skinnier friends comment that they're jealous. And I'm like, wait, why wasn't I born into this I generation? Where- I feel like the analogy I always use is like, you always wanted curly hair. If you had a friend with oh, curly yeah. hair, you're like, I want your curly hair. Um, I love what Brene Brown just did in Atlas of the Heart, where she talks about envy and comparison. Um, if you, it, it's really brilliant. Like envy like, versus jealousy. Right. So she's like, look, you know, 
um, comparison is natural for humans, right? So she's like, it's totally natural to compare yourself. It's the choice around what you decide to do with that comparison, right? It might spur you to action. It might spur you to acceptance. Um, and she said, she said, that's actually, it's totally natural. We're always going to compare ourselves to someone. Um, it's just the choice around how you react to it. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I would say is um, I have been a size eight. I've been a size 22. I've been every size. And at every size that I have been, I have always said, I'm not going to wait to lose the weight to be happy. I'm going to dress in a way that flatters me. And because everyone's always like, I can't tell that you're a size 14, 16. I'm like, because I, I make great clothes, but I also know how to dress myself at every size because yeah. I don't want to delay being happy. Every woman that I meet goes, I'm going to lose 20 pounds. So I don't, not sure I want to buy anything today because I'll come back when I've lost the weight. I'm like, that's fine. I'm happy for you if that's your journey. Buy one thing, just one thing that's going to get you through the next six to 12 months if you're on that journey, because you may lose it, you may gain it, you know, and that one thing you're going to be like, thank God, Lisa, I bought an $88 pair of pants because I had to go to something and it fit me and I was happy in the moment. I don't know why we delay the ability to be happy right now because we think we're going to lose or gain weight, right? Um, so that's that's how I've got, gotten comfortable with like I don't mind that I actually don't mind that I gained 32 pounds I say it matter of factly because I make clothes I just pulled a size 16 pant out of the warehouse I'm like great I was an eight before the pandemic I'm a 16 yeah. now they both and look I'm good guessing, and I'm guessing when you're an eight it's it's like remodeling you're like okay I just did the bathroom but now I need to do the kitchen because as you're at that chase of like more and more and more and beauty and perfection mm. Is like when you're an eight, you were probably like, okay, if I can only get to a six, like just no, putting actually, that, you were great. No, Shana, at an I eight. was happy in eight. I, eight was sustainable. Eight yeah. is like, um, and you know, it's funny because as I've, um, I love what Adele said. Adele, when they asked her how she lost the weight, she's like, I, I was going through a divorce. That. She's like, I was going through a divorce, and my trainer was the only person. I didn't mean to lose the weight. It wasn't about the weight. It was every day I knew at a certain time of day that I would see my trainer and that we would have two hours together. And so last year I went through a breakup and I was like, I have nothing, right? I have a company that I'm trying to keep on life support. I have lost the person I thought I was gonna marry, not, not in terms of losing him, just we broke up and I have nothing. And uh, my dear friend, Anna Kaiser, I called her and she said, I'm sending a trainer to the studio right now. Just go in. And this is right when gyms were reopening in New York. Gyms were one of the last things to reopen. Um, and so I wasn't able to, I, I've danced with her for 10 years. So that's also part of the reason why I gained all that weight is I couldn't go to her gym. She said, I'm sending a trainer there and just go spend an hour and dance. And they told me that I visited the gym 249 times last year because it was the only thing that I knew I could count on in my life. It was the one thing that I knew yeah. that for an hour a day, I could shut it off. I could really enjoy it. I could let the stress out. And she, yeah. I often tell her she saved my life in a lot of ways last year. I, I don't know what I would have done without her studio. Um, and in the process, the weight came off, but I, I would have been happy with the size 16 pants. I wore size 14s yesterday on, in, at an event. Um, I'm, I'm genuine and I'm not being a Pollyanna about this. I'm genuinely happy at whatever size I am. Yeah. And, well, and I don't think, is, yeah. Sorry. I don't think to myself, oh my God, I need to be a size eight again. I'm like, well, I'll get there. And if I do, that'll be great. But if I don't, I still look cute. Yeah, you do. You look more than cute. You're stunning. Okay. So what are the long-term plans? And I am curious yeah. why Gravitas can only be bought on gravitasnewyork.com. Have you thought about 
No, we were in department stores. So we were, um, Lord and Taylor went bankrupt and sent us back millions of dollars of products. So we were in a number of, and Lord and Taylor, the one thing I was really proud of is they allowed us to merchandise our product, um, zero to 26W in the same location. They didn't split us into, they usually have a plus size department and then they have uh, the straight size department. They let us, we were one of the first, we were the first brand actually on the floor of Lord and Taylor to be all sizes in one place because I wanted friends to be able to shop together. Um, so we were in department stores. We also, um, as part of HBC, we were in Hudson's Bay in Canada. We were with Guild. Like we, we've done, um, we did HSN. We've done major retail. Um, and what ended up happening is when Lord and Taylor collapsed um, and they sent us back a ton of product, um, we were about to sign a deal with a major retailer. Uh, we had our first New York Fashion Week show, which was huge in September in September of 2019. And then the pandemic happened. So, you know, the company's less than eight years old. So we have been in traditional retail. Um, our major partner um, went bankrupt. And then we did Fashion Week for the first time. We did a beautiful runway show, all sizes, all ethnicities. Our oldest model was age 46. Like we did a really great runway show. And we had on the table a bunch of deals and then the pandemic happened. Yeah. So it's so not that, that part of the plan. Potentially um, so what we're, what we're doing now is the plan has three parts. So we have our core business, which is the Gravitas main lab label, which will go back into traditional retail in the next few years. Um, but it will continue to grow. We're going to launch some really exciting initiatives with some global partners. Um, the second is we bought a factory in New York City and we have our factories in China. So we are private labeling and producing for other people. Um, everything from a hotel uniform to another brand's products. And that I think was something we were able to build as a capability during the pandemic. And then the third is we have a content business. We sold our book. Um, I actually just signed the publishing agreements two weeks ago. So we'll have a book out next fall. Um, and then there's a whole content platform that sits under the book around giving women self-confidence. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. It just keeps Very getting exciting. better and better. Um, yeah, but we make so many mistakes and well, I, you know, there's so course, many things that I haven't done. <laughs> well, you're, you're human. So we got a sense of how you relax. I am curious because you get so much shit done, like how you set yourself up for a good week. And are there any kind of efficiency productivity hacks that I and our listeners can learn from? I am probably not the best person to give you advice on this. I literally am a hot mess. Uh, the best productivity hack is to surround yourself with people more organized and more efficient than you. Um, I literally, my Myers-Briggs is ENFP, which is basically big picture, always talking out loud, totally disorganized, all up in my feelings. Um, I surround myself with ISTJs. I surround myself with people with the exact opposite Myers-Briggs. And these are people who are like, you know, you're two days away from having to make this decision. If we don't make this decision, eight other things won't happen. Um, I am very fortunate that I would say your greatest efficiency and productivity hacks is to surround yourself with people who fill in all of your gaps and are um, happy to be your partner and will put up with your crazy. That is, that is truly what happens. Um, uh, no, I, 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 I am the least, I am the least capable of giving you that. <laughs> At least on our zoom, it looks pretty organized and it looks pretty efficient. And I also, I'm just thinking about your whole life story 
um, it's just, I think it just might be kind of in you to just get everything done and get it done. In yeah. I, I think I, pre I pretend well, um, I, I genuinely pretend well, I'm incredibly messy. Um, I, the inside of my handbag is, or my work bag is terrible. There's she yeah. sheets of paper. There's envelopes with little notes on them that you I'm like, and I, I, you and I are the same. <laughs> if I showed you my notes right now, this is what they look like. I mean, it's yeah, just, a it's a slight still, shit show, but I know I, where everything is somehow. Yeah. Um, but I would say lucky to work with people who thrive and thrive off of organizing like there are people in life oh, who yeah. kick out of organizing things yeah um but the, oh, the the last thing i'll say which is um i have also gotten really good at pushing people to other forms than email so i am overwhelmed by my email inbox and i'm never able to get through it i have so many unread messages so if i meet someone at an event i will say connect with me on linkedin because LinkedIn Messenger is like text messaging, right? You can go into it. You can decide how you want to react. They have shortcuts. Um, if I meet someone personally, I'm like, let's connect on Instagram and DM there. Like I will try to push to other forms where it's not all in my inbox because I get stressed out by that. I want to keep my inbox just to things that my team needs me to answer, which yeah, I think frustrates people. I think it well, frustrates people. You can also when, use Slack, which is what our team has started to use because yeah. I also, and everybody so, copies me on everything. And I'm like, yeah. ah. So half know. of my team doesn't speak English. Oh yeah, that would be hard. And and so it's, Slack is not a go-to. So we, we still yeah. use email for that. Yeah. And we use WeChat and we use some like Asian apps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is super fun. I'm going to ask you one final question. Sure. And that is what fuels you? I love helping people. I truly love helping people. I love seeing others succeed. And so what fuels me is um, like yesterday I was in an event and, um, you know, a woman came up to me and shared her life story with me and said that what we were doing helped her daughter um, navigate a body issue. Last Saturday, I met a woman at an event and last Saturday she brought her granddaughter who wanted to be a fashion designer to our office to learn what it really meant and bought her granddaughter who's plus size or you know who's who's not the standard 14 year old girl you know um a sweatshirt that made her feel really confident i love seeing people succeed um that's that's what fuels me thank you for listening to the what fuels you podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.